Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Freedom of speech is a basic constitutional right in the United States. It's a human right recognized by international human rights declarations all over the world. It's also a cultural value, an ideal that says that under certain circumstances, we should be able to speak our minds in order to facilitate a meaningful public conversation. And yet at the same time, many people in our society have the feeling, the intuition, the view that free speech may have gone a little bit too far that speech can sometimes be abused and used as a forum or mechanism for suppressing people, subordinating them, and expressing views that have real-world bad effects on the equality of other human beings, whether because of their race, their sex, their sexual orientation, their gender orientation, or a host of other potentially vulnerable characteristics. How should we think about the difficult questions that arise at the intersection of speech, liberty, and equality of all people. This is one of the most profound questions of our time or of any time. And here on Deep Background, we're going to be thinking seriously about this question over the course of the summer. Kicking off our series of conversations about freedom of speech, today I'm joined by Suzanne Nossel. Suzanne is the CEO of PEN America, the organization devoted to protecting the free expression of writers in the United States and around the world. Before joining PEN America, Suzanne was COO of Human Rights Watch. She was executive director of Amnesty International USA, and she worked in both the Obama and Clinton administrations as a deputy assistant secretary of state for international organizations and as deputy to the U.S. ambassador for United Nations management and reform at the United States mission to the United Nations. She's the author of a brand new book, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All, in which she explores the full panoply 
of free expression issues that exist today. Suzanne, thank you for joining me. Let's start with why you decided to write a book about free speech. You're the CEO of PEN America, so you have free speech as one of the aspects of your day job. But, you know, this is a topic that enormous amounts have been written about and lots of people have thought about. And, you know, there are reams and reams of legal materials on it and arguments. And, you know, every philosopher from Milton to Mill has weighed in on the topic. Why did we need a new book and why did you want to write one? Well, it really grew out of a couple of different experiences I had had. The first was when I was at the State Department and I was working on representing the United States at the UN's Human Rights Council in Geneva and the UN General Assembly in New York. And one of the contentious issues there was a debate over the so-called defamation of religion. And it was a concept that Islamic delegations from around the world had brought forward in the wake of, if you remember, the Danish cartoon controversy where there had been these images of the Muslim prophet Muhammad that had been published in a Danish newspaper. And in the wake of that, there was a very harsh reaction and there were protests outside of Danish diplomatic installations around the world and people lost their lives. And there was a sense that Muhammad's reputation had been sullied and it was an insult to Muslims everywhere. And so Islamic countries kind of came forward in the wake of that and wanted to get a UN resolution. And ultimately, they sought a binding treaty that would have banned the defamation of religion. When I arrived at the State Department during the first term of the Obama administration, I sort of got read into this issue. And you know, what struck me was that these Islamic delegations were really concerned about religious intolerance and hostility toward Muslims that was running pretty rampant in the years after 9-11, and that that was a legitimate concern on the part of the United States and our European allies and countries like Canada and Australia. There was a grave concern that banning or punishing the defamation of religion would be an infringement on freedom of speech. And so twice a year, once in New York, once in Geneva, we would go to battle over this resolution and be marshalling votes and getting our embassies and capitals to go in and beg countries to vote with us. And it struck me as just a very pointless exercise. It seemed to me that at the heart of it were legitimate concerns on both sides, that we were against religious intolerance as well. And I wasn't so sure these Islamic countries were entirely indifferent to free speech concerns that are embedded in international law. And so what we decided to do was kind of take a different tack. And we approached the organization of the Islamic Conference at the time and asked whether they would consider an approach to tackling the issue of religious intolerance through means other than restrictions on speech. And we proposed things like dialogue between experts, uh, taking prosecutors from the Justice Department who knew how to go after hate crimes and bringing them to seminars with international counterparts where they could share best practices and educate one another and really look into what works in practice in terms of eradicating hostility on the basis of religion. And look, it didn't happen overnight, but gradually we brought them around, the Islamic delegations around, to the idea that this would be a more constructive approach. And ultimately, we came to a consensus resolution that replaced this kind of notorious resolution on the defamation of religion. And you know, for me, what that underscored was the idea that in debates over free speech, there can be a propensity for the two sides to talk past one another. 
and for considerations of how to create a more just, equal, and inclusive society to be pitted against robust protections for free speech. And you know, years later at PEN America, a similar phenomenon in certain respects reared its head around the controversies on college campuses over free speech. And you know, what occurred to me in the context of those controversies and many that would follow is that you know, it really hinged pretty centrally on questions of race and inclusion and equality and the unfinished business on these campuses of making them into places that were truly hospitable to people from all backgrounds. And that was sometimes manifesting as calls to suppress or punish speech, but that, you know, at the heart of it was really a, a drive for greater equality. And that that push was necessary and essential and could be accomplished without compromising robust protections for free speech and academic freedom. But Susan, can I push back there? I mean, because now you're getting to what to me at least is the heart of the matter for some of these debates. And that is the situation where there is a real tension and maybe even a conflict between ideas about equality and ideas about free expression. And in the abstract, most people in a liberal democracy like the United States are committed to equality, and most people are committed to the idea of free speech. But then when they directly come into conflict, we often have pretty different intuitions. And so when there's speech that some people perceive as impinging on their equality, and the speaker says, well, I didn't mean to impinge on your equality, and then the listener says, well, you did. Then we often get one of the versions of controversy that you're describing, where one side says, listen, Free speech is about words. It doesn't reduce your equality to hear an opinion that you fundamentally disagree with. We're for free speech. And then the other side says, no, you got it wrong. You know, that speech does impinge on my equality and that ought to trump your ability to speak. Not that we're saying you ought to be arrested, but we think that you, within the context of this institution, let's say it's a private university, ought not to have said that. Or if you're in a position of responsibility or importance where you are in charge of me in some way, I don't want you to say these kinds of things. And I really think you shouldn't. How can it be, Suzanne, that those are like resolvable within some creative alternative framework? Those seem like genuine conflicts to me between liberty and equality. Yeah, I think there are some instances where you have a fundamental clash, but that a lot of the time what manifests as that is actually something different. And that, for example, if the speech is looked at in context and if people understand what the intent is, that they recognize that it's not necessarily racist or sexist and that, you know, censoring it or punishing it isn't the only answer. So I think a certain number of the cases that can be resolved that way. There are other instances where someone says something that comes off to others as, let's say, racist or sexist. And, you know, they didn't mean it that way. But, you know, the interpretation of others is quite legitimate. You know, it reflects changing mores or, you know, a term that used to be considered acceptable, but now isn't. I mean, I use the example in the book of my mother and the term oriental to refer to Asian Americans, you know, which for many years was commonly used. And then at a certain point, it really fell into disfavor and it carried certain connotations and not everybody cottoned on to that at the same moment. You know, where something like that happens, I think we need to have some room for apology and a genuine apology and a willingness to hear out why something you've said your whole life that never seemed objectionable, you know, now may be objectionable. And you've got to listen to the other person and understand why that's the case. You know, and on the flip side, forgiveness. You know, if this is a person who genuinely didn't know, you wouldn't 
have necessarily expected would know, given you know their own background or the milieu that they operate in, have some space and some willingness to consider whether forgiveness is appropriate. So I don't argue that there is no clash. I just argue that we can manage these clashes much more constructively. Let me ask you, Suzanne, about a chapter in your book. It's chapter 12, which has a fascinating and perhaps provocative title. The title is Don't Equate Speech with Violence. And in the chapter, you start by quoting a Northwestern University psychologist, Lisa Feldman Barrett, no relation to me, who's argued that biological stress induced by menacing speech renders that speech literally a form of violence. And then you go on to disagree with this argument pretty vociferously. So why do you find this argument unconvincing? You know, I have another chapter in the book that is about the harms of speech. And the argument is that we have to acknowledge and come to grips with those harms. We can't fall back on the idea that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. We know that's not true. And that there especially is research on certain kinds of speech that genuinely can cause psychological damage, can undercut people's opportunity for a equal education, can constitute harassment. So the harms are real. But I do think it is a mistake to equate speech with violence. I think the call to equate speech and violence really comes from is born of a sense that those harms are under acknowledged and that the right answer is to fully recognize the harms that certain kinds of speech can cause, but reject this equation with physical violence. And, you know, that's for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, if if my speech is the equivalent of physical violence, how are you not then justified in responding by punching me in the nose? If I've committed an act of violence, your violence in response is justifiable. And that's an invitation to violence and to escalation. And I think that's dangerous. You know, another reason is that You know, in most societies, the state, of course, has a monopoly on the use of force. And so if you underwrite and accept this argument that speech can be a form of violence, that protesting in the streets peacefully can itself be a form of violence because of the words used, the chants that are said, the posters that are displayed, then you're justifying the state clamping down on that speech through violence, through harsh policing, arrests tear gas and worse. And so I think it's just a dangerous false equivalency to draw. That doesn't mean even necessarily that there aren't categories of speech that cause harm that, you know, in some jurisdictions are less protected than they are here in the United States. I think that's a discussion you can have. You know, should we be more restrictive in certain times of certain kinds of hateful speech. You know, I tend to think not and that the downsides outweigh the plus sides. But I think that's a, a discussion you can have. But I don't think it's helpful in any instance to draw this equivalency between pure speech and physical violence. I have many, many things to say in response to this line of argument. But let me just say one narrow one here. It's not the case in the law that it's always justified for me to respond to your violence with violence. Sometimes it is but sometimes it just isn't. So I don't think that could be the argument against it. And, you know, there are circumstances where I think we would all acknowledge that words can be much more harmful than physical violence. So two kids are playing in the playground and one pushes the other. That's physical violence. And the adult wants to step in and say, you shouldn't do that. And maybe some punishment or timeout is appropriate. Now the same two kids are playing and instead of one pushing the other, one bullies the other with some verbal epithet that we think is terribly offensive, a racial slur or a slur associated with sexual orientation. 
There, I think we have the intuition, or at least I have the intuition, that the amount of adult intervention and punishment is appropriately greater than in the case of a mild push. And that, to me, is because of the moral wrongfulness of the statement, but also because of the damage that it's capable of doing through bullying to the child who's being bullied, which seems to me potentially much greater than being pushed, again, depending on how hard the push was. So doesn't that suggest that there are circumstances where, admittedly, a word is not the literal same thing as a push, but it could be much worse than the push under some circumstances? I don't disagree with that. I just think they're categorically distinct and that it's important to uphold that distinction. Because I hear the equation of words and violence used pretty loosely, that expressions or comments that really fall far short of a slur that may be inadvertent, that may reflect a reasonable difference of opinion on an issue that should be a legitimate subject of debate, sometimes labeled as violence. And it's a real conversation ender. You know, if something you said is labeled as violent, well, how do you come back against that? It sort of shuts down the potential for discourse. So I agree with you. I think there are instances where a slur or an expression of bigotry can be far more damaging than violence, but that we're better off just recognizing that they're distinct categories and each needs to be dealt with in its own way and that I don't find it helpful to equate them. We'll be right back. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel car. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. 
If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Let me ask you about the free speech adjacent, let's say, controversy that's been going on publicly in recent weeks and months surrounding a public letter by a a group of public intellectuals in Harper's. I believe you did not sign that letter, correct? No, I did not. Tell me what your thoughts are about the letter and the public response and the reaction to it. Yeah, look, I think there are a number of things going on at once. We're in this moment of reckoning on systemic racism and police brutality and what it's going to take for us to push forward to the next level of inclusivity, equality, and justice in the society. And I think that's very important. And many people are rightly focused in a deep and searching way on what needs to be done to dismantle barriers, to eradicate racism. You know, and I think this, you know, impulse to drive forward a more equal society is a very positive one, but that we need to be vigilant that it not cross over into censoriousness or an overreaction to the expression of views and free speech. And so I think that's what the writers of the Harper's letter were trying to say. And it triggered an outsized reaction, kind of an inferno on Twitter with people suggesting that this was the outcry of people who are privileged, objecting to sort of the undercutting of their platforms, that this is a distraction from this seminal moment of racial transformation. And so, you know, it sort of reflects, I think, this problem in our discourse that we have a propensity to talk past one another and that, you know, at times the drive toward racial and gender-based equality can be kind of pitted against the robust protection of free speech. And we understand why that happens, but I think through reasoned discourse, We can and we must recognize that ultimately we need these principles to come together. They're both so fundamental to our constitution, to our democracy. We want to be an equal society and we want to be a society that respects free speech. So how do we make those things coincide and reinforce one another? I think there are many examples of how they do, but there are also instances, and this Harper's letter was a vivid one, of how they're sort of seen to clash. And the effort really in the book is to explain Here's how these things can fit together. You go to some lengths in your book to say that you're against cancellation or cancel culture, but you do support what you call calling out culture as long as it's done with caution. Say a bit about your approach to these very delicate and sensitive questions. Yeah, I think it's very context intensive. And, you know, now the term cancel culture, I think, has sort of taken on a new meaning and a very elastic meaning where it really can refer to everything from a perfectly legitimate give and take and argument and debate often online to harsh draconian punishments for speech by an institution. And to me, those are very different things that should not be lumped together. What I talk about in the book is the idea that in calling out it should be done conscionably, thoughtfully, and you should consider whether there's a possibility of doing what I call a call in, which is more of a private approach. Is this, you know, someone who you think may be well-intended, someone you know well, someone who may have just erred or been unaware or didn't get the memo, 
And by sort of tapping them on the shoulder or sending them an email or giving them a call, they may retract the tweet or the Facebook post or apologize for something. And what could become a huge dust up is avoided through that private approach. So I think that's worth considering. I also think there are instances where a call out is appropriate and necessary. And it can be an instance where somebody says something publicly that is hurtful and offensive, and it's important to ally with those who are on the receiving end, who may feel stigmatized or victimized. So they need to hear that they have support out there, that other people heard this, that they're not alone in defending themselves. So I think in instances like that, it's important to jump in. Sometimes the speech has reverberations right away and the damage is done. And so calling in is really not an option. And you know the only recourse is for an institutional leader to express dismay, even contempt, for offensive speech, and that can be perfectly appropriate. So I think, you know, what we struggle with is these questions of intent and context, which I stress in the book. And unfortunately, our social media-driven culture moves so quickly. We see so much divorce from its context. We may not even know who originally posted it. It may be snipped out and juxtaposed with something else. And so there's an impulse to react to just what you see on the surface, but sometimes probing a little bit further will reveal that the intent or the import was something else entirely. So I advocate kind of taking a pause and making sure you really know what you're seeing and what you're reading before you react, and particularly before you react strongly. You know, your approach, which calls for reason and logic and calm, it can only be welcomed, and I profoundly agree with it. Do you ever wonder if if we are capable of achieving such things in this moment? As you mentioned, social media is not exactly conducive to this kind of calm, thoughtful, rational engagement. People seem to be raring for a fight on all sides of these issues. And often it is about political power. So I guess I'm wondering, what would you say to a, a respondent from the progressive side who says, you know, look, Suzanne, it's all nice and well and good for you as the CEO of PEN America to say, well, you know, just a call would really help. And they say, well, we're, we're the powerless, not the powerful. We can't just make a call and tap someone on the shoulder. What we can do is motivate our base to speak publicly, to go on social media, to make their point. And that will enhance us to a position where we will have the power to make sure that then we can call people privately. You know, I think that can be sort of a fair point, you know, and other points that get made that are related, you know, when I talk about forgiveness, that sort of some people are always on the end of this where they're being asked to forgive again and again. And that's not fair. And it's often people of color who are on the receiving end of these slights and aggressions and hostile speech. And so I think it is important to recognize that we're in this moment of reckoning that people are amassing power and mobilizing their voices and speaking out in some instances, either for the first time or with newfound strength. And that that represents a boon for free speech. You know, when you have an environment or society or campus where a certain portion of the population feels de facto silenced because they're in the minority, because others are derisive toward them, because they don't see anybody looks like them on the faculty and they feel on the outside of the dynamic in the classroom where other students are more favored or mentored by their professors. That's an impingement upon free speech. That's something less than the truly open discourse that I think is the ultimate goal of the free speech protections embedded in the Constitution. So I think it's very important to recognize that a moment like this ultimately drives forward the cause of free speech. And that 
it's not appropriate to ask everybody to be reasonable 100% of the time. I actually think if sort of 95% of us could be reasonable 95% of the time, we could deal with those instances where a very strong, intense reaction to speech is instinctive or justified. You know, there are those cases. I also think the president of the United States has played a role in this. He's emboldened hateful speech. He's sort of the poster child for lack of accountability, for saying all kinds of noxious and demeaning things to so many different groups. And so sort of in the wake of that, there's this impulse across society to try to police speech more strongly in realms that we can control, whether that's the classroom or a magazine or a particular community. And I think if we're able to look to a time where his influence leaves the scene, we should really be thinking about, you know, how is it that we want to live together? And some of the taboos that he has undercut and eroded, I think, need to be brought back up to strength. And if they are, and if people feel they can be more comfortable here in this country, that they're not going to be targeted because they're Black or because they're a Muslim or because they're an undocumented immigrant, and that there's more respect, I think that will create more space for free speech, even when on occasion we bump up against one another's sensitivities. And there may be some sense of offense, but if you feel more at home and welcomed in society at large, I think you're better placed to tolerate that. Suzanne, I want to thank you for your work and for this fascinating and thought-provoking book and for your practical guidance to all of us for how to be a little more reasonable and calm and are talking about the very fraught issues around freedom of speech. And I just want to thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun to talk with you. This conversation with Suzanne was, I think, an excellent introduction to some of the very hard free speech related issues that we are going to be grappling with in future weeks here on Deep Background. Suzanne is advocating a calm, rational, thoughtful approach to free speech questions, characterized by charitable interpretation of the other side, by efforts to listen closely, by efforts to be gentle and to be cautious, and above all, not to exercise power too overtly or profoundly in trying to silence your interlocutors. And yet, there may be circumstances where, for reasons of the gathering of political power and the march to try to achieve greater human equality— People don't accept the idea that they should tread lightly when it comes to free expression. That's a challenge that all free speech advocates are going to have to engage, and it's one we will continue to explore in our future episodes. And now for our playback, where we take a moment from the news and play it back in order to make sense of it. Those are the sounds of protesters clashing with the police in Seattle this Saturday. There were similar demonstrations across the country this weekend. These protests began as part of the Black Lives Matter movement, but they've taken a turn recently as a result of Donald Trump's provocative decision in Portland, Oregon, to send Federal Department of Homeland Security officers, frequently in paramilitary gear, and unmarked uniforms in order to, quote, protect federal property and enforce federal law. To be sure, the President of the United States does have the constitutional authority to protect federal property if it's genuinely in jeopardy. And federal officers, like those in the FBI or the DEA, enforce federal law 
all the time. What's happening, however, in Portland, and what Donald Trump has said may happen elsewhere, seems to be rather different. Of course, the protests have in some instances concentrated on federal buildings, giving Trump an excuse to send federal officers and making it hard for a court to say that those officers cannot be present. Yet there seems to be no doubt in terms of public perception that what Donald Trump is trying to do is use the opportunity of sending these officers to send a message to his supporters that he is in a position to protect his constituents against protesters. It's very noteworthy in this context that Trump is not sending the officials whose job it actually is to enforce federal law, people like the officers of the FBI and the DEA. And it's telling and a little frightening that Trump is sending people who work for the Department of Homeland Security, whose job is in fact to focus on illegal entrants to the United States who happen to be engaged in crime. There is no credible way to describe protesters, even if they sometimes cross the line away from being perfectly peaceful protesters, as domestic terrorists. And there is no reason whatsoever to think that any of the protesters are people who in any way are connected to unlawful entrance to the United States. This is pure bootstrapping by the Trump administration. And it's appropriate to point out that it violates the statutory norms that tell us which officials of the government go where and do what. Will Trump, in fact, extend the sending of federal officers to other major cities as he has threatened to do? It's certainly possible. Has he discovered a new way to draw the ire and attention and frustration of anti-Trump protesters? Indeed, he has. Will that ultimately play into Trump's hands or into the hands of his critics? That is a much more difficult question. But it's certainly worth keeping in mind that many of Trump's supporters themselves have libertarian tendencies. They, at least in principle, should not want federal officers with a questionable legal mandate deploying around the country, grabbing up people who are exercising their First Amendment rights and holding them, as has been alleged in Portland, without charge. Trump is playing election season politics. He's playing fast and loose with the Constitution. That means the proper response is vigilance, precision, and objection. But almost certainly, it would not be a good idea for protesters to play into Trump's hands by allowing their protests to be anything other than clearly peaceful and within the exercise of their First Amendment rights. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with mastering by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And one last thing. I just wrote a book called The Arab Winter, A Tragedy. I would be delighted if you checked it out. If you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. You can always let me know what you think on Twitter. My handle is Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. If 
a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io/ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.